to episode 17 of the Horus Heretics. I'm William. I'm your other host, Neil. And today we're looking at Mechanicum by Graham McNeil. This is a this feels like the first time in ages we've actually read one of these books, which it sort of is because we had a break over Christmas. Yeah, it's um, been it's been nice. As as can be uh, attested to by our sort of three or four attempts to intro this episode, which <laughs> which nobody will hear. William sort of seemed to forget to speak in that time <laughs> since we've recorded, <laughs> which explains why which Neil was kind of parodying in the actual introduction you'll hear by using the word host. But that's you kept it together uh, manfully, though. Well, it's good. Um. Mechanicum. Uh, this is quite a different book, I would say, from um, most of the ones we've looked at so far, because we're dealing with. It's not focused around a space marine legion. It's focused around the the Mechanicum, so the the sort of machine worshiping people who themselves, to varying degrees, have become machines who live on Mars and make giant war robots, amongst other things, and uh, supply munitions and guns and warfare technology and other things to the legions, uh, the fleets of the Emperor uh, throughout the galaxy. Yeah, and um, it's uh, it's sort of mentioned uh, throughout the, the first half of the book that the Empire of Mars is a an old sort of institution and it's a an organization which has a an alliance with uh, the imperium and isn't part of it and uh, that sort of tension between the two uh, is clear uh, from the from the get-go and is sort of the source of a lot of the um, the arguments and sort of reason for the book's existence really yeah and we we kind of know a fair bit about the background to this story from the books we've already read so um we know that the mechanics that there's a sort of uh rift within the mechanicum some of them join with horus and we've seen various characters from the mechanicum particularly in the last book i think um yeah the the uh the abyss the big ship book oh yeah um because we saw that being built at Mechanicum site, and um, there was a bit, a little bit on Mars there. Um, That's right. Which we and we and we, uh, we met Kelbor Hall in that, and we uh, we saw that he was um, instrumental to the production of the Furious Abyss, and he was already part of Horus's heresy uh, at that point. Yeah, and he's the top dude on in the mechanicum he's the fabricator general um and we also met regulus who i think is like a, a mechanicum guy that's that served with horus's fleet yeah he's the and, he's the sort of voice piece for the mechanicum to horus yeah and he's he comes into this book we're reading just now um although the fury so, the furious abyss does get name checked in this it does yeah there's actually a few little uh, references to things in other um, books that we've had so far um, and uh, but anyway to sort of like die that's a little bit of just background setting and most people can remember how thrilling it was the first time you ever picked up a copy of Lord of the Rings and or a Hobbit and saw a map at the start of oh, it right. this is this is so cool and um this book has a map right at the start of it, um, which depicts the Tharsis Quadrangle of Mars, which is the setting for uh, most of the action, um, most of the, 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 the story uh, so far anyway. And it's um, so we see places like the Magma City, um, the Mondus Gamma Forge Temple of Lucas Crom. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the Tharsis Thoas spaceport, uh, Mondus Oculum, domain of the Fabricator Locum. And what's so strange about it is that, like, we're talking about Mars, the entire city, or the, excuse me, the entire planet, and everything seems to 
take like happen within what seems like a small cul-de-sac <laughs> like everything seems uh that takes place is, is just so monumental in scale for the future of mars but everything's right beside each other yeah yeah um which i suppose sort of makes sense because it's like where the the olympus mons forge temple uh like the domain of the fabricator general like which is like the would presumably be the center of uh, everything on mars and um so it sort of makes sense i guess that other important things would cluster around that but yeah it is like it's actually refreshingly contained geographically yes this <laughs> story very much so and it is um no space marines are mentioned uh, oh, yeah. space travel is sort of barely mentioned um it happens at the start and then kind of forgotten about so you do get a sense that this is this is a martian story and yeah yeah so it's uh, i i enjoyed that but um and and so to get into the narrative actually with another uh reference to the lord of the rings um so i remember like reading or hearing about this idea that like the hobbits work well in the lord of the rings because they act as a and i guess in in the hobbit as well um through bilbo baggins they are kind of like a conduit for the reader into this fantastical world if you know what i mean because they are new to it most of it as well yeah you know they've they've lived in this kind of secluded sort of idyllic sort of english countryside <laughs> yeah and there is like literally nothing special about them whereas everybody else does have something special about them but they just sort of um yeah they just live a kind of tranquil fairly tranquil sort of lifestyle and then they get drawn into a big adventure by wizards and whatnot and um we see it through their eyes so as they learn about it we learn about it as well um and I thought this book had a very a good character in that uh, vein who was called Dahlia. Mm, I'm going to have to disagree with you here. Um, oh dear. Up until, yeah, I, she is a sort of, yeah, she's a, a neophyte, so she doesn't know about the the Martian ha- uh, hierarchy or anything like that. What, did, what word did I use there? Is that right? Hierocracy. Um I don't know. No, uh, no, that can't be right. Um, hi- hierarchy. Jesus, you, you've been reading these books uh, yeah, so long that you started making up sort of Latin. <laughs> I started, I started gilding the lily of, of perfectly normal, understandable words. Jesus, oof. I was gonna, I was gonna um, cut that out, but I think I'll leave that in just so that listeners know the cost. <laughs> By, by the end, by the end of this, like we'll be like, so I'm sitting in my domum, um, uh, having having just been to my civil servisorium to do. Oh my goodness, that is rough. Anyway, um, yes, I agree that she um, she is a sort of uh, an an in for us to Martian society, but as a character, I thought she was bad i thought she was sort of badly sketched out and um uh, well i mean she is a she is a, a a woman so that is an interesting start for these books because we don't get many uh lead rules for women in book in in these books um but she is a little bit too wide-eyed and innocent for me a little bit too um uh, accepting of everything and uh, naive, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there is like I suppose my point was not so much about her as a character in her own right as her as a sort of, sort of narrative device, you know, to kind of uh, draw you into and describe the Martian setting and 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 also the the the, the sort of process of traveling up there and and the spacecraft. And I just thought that worked much more effectively than when you're sort of just dropped straight into this like was of conferences of space marines and stuff like that <laughs> yeah um, well yeah and, and that's fair but that's true uh, i just think that she always felt like a device rather than uh, a character worth reading about to be honest yeah well we'll get to some of this later on when when she when the, the, her narrative sort of progresses but true we, we, uh, we haven't even mentioned the prophecy at the start of the book always boring always terrible to start any story with a prophecy 
because um, every book always fulfills that prophecy for some, <laughs> some reason. Um, there's never any prophecy that turns out to be completely made up, uh, like real prophecy. And I won't go into it, but uh, because it's a bit, it's a bit much. But um, it it comes from the Brotherhood of, and I'm going to have to read this out myself because it's a difficult word to get your mouth around. The Brotherhood of Singularitarianism, which is a mouthful. It was in fact exhorted by Pico <laughs> della Maravic, prim- Primus of the Brotherhood of Singularitarianism. Sing- singularitarianism. Um, Singularitarianism. Um, I wait. Is this not a prophecy about? It's about the coming, the coming of, the of coming of the emperor. Yeah. So that's the sort of backstory of it. I, I forgot to mention as well. Like all that we don't talk about this enough, possibly. But like all these books have little kind of mottos under the title, and the one this book's one is knowledge is power. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read that, but that would have got me really jazzed up for <laughs> for what's to come. Um, so anyway, we, like we've talked about Dahlia, but we haven't really said what who she is and what her role is. But so she she starts off on Terra in the Emperor's palace, which is like a massive giant city, um, and she works in some sort of library. Uh, so, um, yeah, she's a a, a transcriber in uh some sort of uh scriptorium and i thought yeah she it, the description the description of this was really good i thought um, yeah she's um she, I, again the word remembrance is used and um whenever whenever there's a sort of uh, audience surrogate in a, in these stories it's always the remembrancers so there is something to talk about these books is sort of um Harkening onto the importance of remembrance and writing things down and having a, a an honest and true recitation of history rather than uh, something that's uh, written by the warriors that that committed. Yeah, there's a line that suggested that part of the, the what she transcribed was stuff coming from the remembrancers. She uh, is transcribing, basically copying. Uh, into a more usable form all knowledge of uh, old tech that is recovered from archaeological digs that is recovered from colonies on other planets and part of that is transcribing what comes in from the remembrancers as well so yeah basically it's a it's the central library for uh, all of these different strands of sort of data input she is the the mediator in that, which sounds like just the best job ever, <laughs> frankly. And uh, it kind of goes on to to be that way. It, um, the importance that it gives to that role is uh, a really interesting one. But she's like she is in that role. She's like just a kind of low level, like sort of administrator, kind of um, amongst many others. Um, yeah, t- but she get no, she gets kind of plucked out. Yeah, totally. Like uh, the importance isn't given to her at the start. She is just a small, uh, slightly unimportant cog, and uh, it, it actually makes mention of how um, she thought she knew how important the job was and how thrilling it was, but she al- she also couldn't quite believe how everybody else in her scriptorium was just like you know, going about business as normal and just kind of uh, doing it as a normal day job without really recognizing how incredible it was. Yeah, and this is like one of the the core themes of the book, which I actually think more so than probably any other books I read, I thought this book actually had some interesting things to say and made, made you think about some interesting things beyond like the book itself in a much more substantial way. Like, this idea of like I thought it was a really it's a really, I mean we've heard of obviously the mechanicum already but like it's a really interesting like notion I thought as a sci-fi setting these these sort of really literally machine worshipping people who do not like the, it's not part of their normal uh, way of thinking to actually develop or come up with technology it's all about 
finding it yeah. and then sort of recreating it and yeah and um that's a, a good point and they actually put in uh, structures and mechanisms within their society to punish people for actually innovating um and that is what brings uh dahlia Scythera to the attention of zeth uh, another main character um because uh, dahlia actually uh, modifies her own cogitator which i think is like a sort of brain implant um she modifies it to be better at her job but just better at remembering things better at processing information and that is uh proscribed and zeth who is a bit of a revolutionary within the mechanicum uh, hears about this and brings dahlia to mars yeah so uh <laughs> sorry the the process of her i can't remember exactly how she gets how she sort of gets called away from her normal place of work but she ends up in this spaceship with uh these protectors who are like mechanicum sort of guards i guess and one of the curious things about these protectors she notices is that essentially they have like completed sudoku puzzles in their armor <laughs> yes. i have uh i've written down sudoku as well but <laughs> it was would, would this have been before sudoku sort of had that sort of brief explosion in popular had, a, had a moment yeah i'm not sure actually like um it feels like it would have been about the same time, maybe, but... Uh, because it does describe the rules of Sudoku. <laughs> it's, like, it's like she she um, notices that these, uh, thing, these large protectors, they're called, have, have scraps of parchment on their shoulders or something like that. And she's going, hmm, all the numbers in these grids... Yes, they they add up to the same number if you go across and vertically and diagonally and within the same grid. And you're like, I've done Sudoku. I, I don't, it's just really funny. It's treated like almost as something mystical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's a mystical thing that I need to explain. So this, so so anyway, before we maybe get into that, this is kind of one of our main strands is Dahlia and uh, her interactions with Zeth, but also some other kind of um, peers of Dahlia, if you like, in the story who are like other people of about her level who have been sort of selected for um, by Zeth for special skills they've displayed for some project that she wants to pursue. Oh, yeah, she, she um, totally puts a team together. Yeah. yeah. In, a, in, a, in a very sort of an action movie for nerds. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good description. We'll come back to that, right? Because there, there's that's that is an apt uh, way of putting it, right? Um, and uh, they so so that's one strand. The other strand sort of concerns. Well, there's a kind of there's a fair bit at the start about the the knights of Tyrannus, right? Who are like to so obviously we know about the Titans, and they're something that's created on Mars, and we'll get back to them. But there's there's also knights, which are kind of like miniature titans, I guess. Um, yeah. That whereas a titan is um, something like a Power Rangers type affair, where lots of people are in one giant mech and causing it to work. The knights are one person, sort of power armor. Well, not power armor because. Um, it's 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 human shape, but it's not like completely around their body almost. Uh, in the same way that like I I said that it's um uh, action movie for nerds. This is totally mech a mech story, uh, yeah. and I was I was up for that. Yeah. So these I think that like knights are just I mean they're still big, but they're they're like they're ten meters tall. So, uh, but but. It, it actually does mention that those would be dwarfed by a titan, uh, yeah. and that's cool. There's a, quite a bit to talk about here, because they say that they had been on crusade uh, helping the emperor, and that, for as long as it existed, helped to reduce any of the tensions, because there was this sort of external thing to concentrate on. The emperor has left the crusade now, and 
uh, there's a lot of Titans and sort of war machines back on Mars for a refit. So there's a lot of that. And because of the lack of um, the lack of cause for knights, the, the, these sort of smaller mini mechs uh, in the Crusade, there's there's less call for them. They feel slightly left out. And um, I think there's there's that kind of role again of the warrior who is uh, be, has been left behind that we've sort of uh, experienced in these other books. But there, I think there's a little bit more to say also on the structure of Martian society here. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a big, uh, big one to get into. Just, just a last point on the, the knights. They actually don't figure that much after the early stages of this first half. I think they must come back into it in a bigger way in the, the second half of the book. But they deal with like... The, there's kind of a fight um, around one of the forges, an attack by a unknown force, and there's a sort of mysterious AI machine thing that they fight in there. But um, anyway, yeah, sorry, but the structure more generally is is the sort of other main strand is the kind of politics, I guess. Of yeah, and um, as you say, there each sort of forge is a, a city state on its own, and uh, has its own army it works to its own sort of individual uh, purposes they don't share the same goals uh, apart from production but how they how they uh, do that is, is their own sort of competing quest for resources and power and these these knights are protecting a a generator for a forge and the generator is generating uh, power and electricity which is then used in treaties and negotiations with the legios they are the the titan organizations which are separate they are not they i think they are part of the mechanicum but they are yeah. they are not like they are not subsets of forges the forges um make requests for protection and for the legios to do certain things and to protect uh, this particular forge against uh, the workings of other forges um, and in uh, in return get the resources from these uh, generators and stuff like that. So it's a really interesting setup of um, interoperability and requirements put on each of them and because nobody has all of the... Uh, has all of the requirements to succeed so there are all these like treaties and and uh, kind of small warring factions and stuff it's really yeah it's a really interesting world to tell a story in but up until the point of the story they have there hasn't been an actual at least not significant violence between these factions for a long long time um I mean, it says there's an occasional skirmish almost as if like the knights needed to kind of I think it suggested as if they sort of did this to just test their battle skills, but uh, essentially, despite there being a lot of tensions and politicking, they weren't. There wasn't open warfare between any of these factions for a long time. So in this um, in this part, um, the reactor of uh, a fairly high up uh, Martian adept called Ipluvian Maximal, which is a good name. <laughs> Um, his uh, one of his reactors is uh, destroyed um, by uh, a sort of army of uh, of human forces, but also what appears to be a, a new type of knight uh, equivalent, but something that hasn't really been seen before. Let's go back to Coriel Zeth and uh, her meeting with um, Dahlia. Uh, yeah. She brings her to Mars and basically says, I've assembled a team that I want you to join. Totally action movie-like, and I really enjoyed this bit. She sort of throws her in the deep end. She's she's in the Magma City, which is a, a cool sort of floating, almost like oil rig on lava, which is really yeah. awesome. Um, and she basically gives them this impossible task of, of building this machine 
from the scraps of notes from this slightly revolutionary mad scientist within the hierarchy and each of them has a different skill there's a there's an engineer there's someone who is like can can marshal these different people she's a good manager there's a, a good like drafter someone who's good at like drafting plans and uh, somebody who's good at like building them and Dahlia is the person who can fill in the gaps of these blueprints and sort of make the leaps of uh, intuition and creativity that will allow this impossible thing to be built well yeah she's kind of the the genius that yeah um they're all very skilled in certain areas um it turned out that part of that is because she has a link to what they call the ether um which i think is just another name for the warp yeah in terms of your like action movie for nerds uh idea i think that's like not only in like what you said like each of them has a kind of different special skill it's a bit like a sort of D D party or something you know what i mean <laughs> each each of the also like there was a bit where they were working on this and like making breakthroughs and stuff and talking about dahlia's thought process that i was like this is really good actually it's the equivalent of like in the action movie for nerds sort of paradigm this is like the equivalent of your battle scene was like them working on the thing and having a breakthrough yeah and it was and like i actually thought like some of it was really good like there was an unusual feeling for this because it was actually like quite uplifting one bit of it where like it was like they were breaking through the sort of dogma of you know what we've talked about of just like you find machines you don't develop things you just find them and sort of recreate them and they were actually like creating here and it yeah. was like quite exciting and uh kind of uplifting because it was like the sense of them their excitement as they were sort of breaking free of this and and, and there is a, a sort of a, a conversation between zeth and dahlia later on where they talk about this very this very thing and whether um zeth actually believes in the emperor as omnisaya and uh, she talks about the requirement to do away with all of this dogma and um, you know just he is a a great man who has lots of good ideas but isn't the omnisire and you're just like okay this is this is interesting this is good we have some we have some seemingly sane people although that sort of we're not quite sure by the end of that's true but <laughs> because I totally agree it is it is quite uplifting and it is something that what I was slightly scratching my head about because I was like, hold on, I feel like I'm on their side and I haven't been on anyone's side, <laughs> you know, uh, in this podcast yet. So, yeah. And um, so then we should alongside, sorry, we, sorry, we should talk about what they're actually building. And yeah, I, I wasn't really sure until oh, right. <laughs> um, until they finished it and even then but anyway sorry yeah what, no, no, what, what, um dahlia is able to sort of put it together in her own mind uh what these plans are for before they even build it so it's a it's a, a machine that allows the human that interfaces with the human mind that allows the recording of a huge amount of memory more so than the human brain could ever achieve on its own this machine will be used in the Akashic Reader, which is a, a kind of warp-type machine that uh, is the, a part of the warp, or maybe all of the warp, where all knowledge exists. And tapping into it, people can know the sum of all human knowledge. And then this recorder will be able to bring some of that remembrance out of the warp and record it here and so that information will be able to be used to create all kinds of uh, wonderful inventions and and steps forward for the imperium and it's it's actually an interesting thing because she says that uh, this reader or this entrance into this world of knowledge is how uh, Mars and all previous human societies reached for the stars before and how 
this sort of age of technology which we hear about how that all happened was that humans did have some way into this uh this world of knowledge uh and that's what led to their step forwards so kelbor hal um he um is in he's in his temple on olympus mons called the temple of all knowledge which is another good name and it is a a real picture it's a, a pink and black pyramid upped by a glass dome um so he's clearly got like no style whatsoever <laughs> <laughs> and like he's from the from the jump he is he he's like talking shit about the emperor he just doesn't <laughs> like there there is no arc for this guy <laughs> <laughs> like his conversion has essentially already happened yeah, you're just um, like, you're just like just why are you not a heretic already like there is no movement for you i think and you later find out he's basically been pissed off for like 200 yeah, years totally like <laughs> and 200 years ago he was like telling the emperor don't delete any of my information and the emperor was like no i will and he was like well fucking i'm gonna wait 200 years and then you'll get a payback because <laughs> like um so we do get like we do get in this book the kind of it seems to have be pretty much there already by the time this book starts but the kind of sealing of the deal of him uh siding with horus um when regulus shows up and promises that they will be, up, be allowed to go into the vaults of moravec is it the vaults of moravec and that's the guy who wrote the prophecy at the start of the book that you mentioned Indeed, before he was part of the cult of singularitarianism <laughs> so th- so these are like this is a guy that if correct me if i'm wrong but he had been in a sort of era of mankind uh before the imperium or anything he had been regarded as a kind of witch all of his research was kept within a vault which the emperor ordered sealed and at some point, I think, like many books in the future, when we read more, I think we, we, I'd like to do a full episode on how stupid and shit the Emperor is. Because um, <laughs> on so many occasions, he's just the biggest dick. And this is just one of them. So we have this religion dedicated to learning and recovering old knowledge. There is this vault of old knowledge which the emperor leaves on the same planet and says, <laughs> "You must promise never to open." And they go, "Oh yeah, we promise." And he goes, "Okay, I'm I'm gone. You won't see me again." And and he expects that to work. Like, oh, fucking idiot. Um, and like, there are a couple more characters in this conversation between Regulus and. Uh, Kelborhal that I want to mention not because they're important because they aren't but because of their names so we've got Lucas Crom but the other guy is called Ertzi Malevolus <laughs> which, which in sort of nominative determinism when he was born or created or whatever happens on Mars he had no chance to be like a good guy you can't be you can't go on to create like a new musical instrument if you're called Ertzi Malevolus you're gonna to have to be uh, evil doer. <laughs> so yeah, like the sorry, just before I forget that you said about the emperor wiping Kelber Howe's memory. That was because, or like some information from his memory banks or whatever. He had, they had gone down together, a bunch of them to the vaults of Moravec, but he'd kind of like raised his memory of how to get back there, basically. Um, and that sort of pissed him off, amongst other things. But, like, one thing that really amused me about Kelber Hall was, like, I can't remember what, but someone said, I feel that something, something is happening. And then, like, Kelber Hall sort of snapped at him and was like, don't use stupid words like feelings, you know what I mean? Just tell me what is and what isn't, yeah. you know? He just wants to know facts. However, if you get him onto the subject of humans, just he gets really... Uh, he can't contain his emotions, and he, <laughs> he gets when like that really... happens, something strange occurs. 
<laughs> and he's like, a human element, repeated Kelberhell. The hiss of binary contained a vehement disparagement in its code as to the fabricator general, general would be happier without such elements altogether. It's always the human element that skews calculations. Too many elements of chaotic variability alter the outcome in ways too numerous to predict. It is no way to run a galaxy. The, I thought you were going to mention when they do open the vaults of Moravec, whenever he starts having real emotions... Uh, Regulus offers to open the vault and give them this information of the technology merged with the warp to create ultimate killing machines. So long as uh, as they swear to Horus that they will wipe out the loyal contingent on Mars and be ready to work with the War Master whenever he like openly starts his heresy. And at which point, at which point, Kalborhal goes, yeah fine fine all, all, <laughs> already there and he is actually just like just open the fucking door already like the, he's like is that it, is, it is, that, is that it like i, I agreed to that last year just open the fucking door you're talking too much and whenever whenever he, he does do that he starts having all these human emotions as this like uh, evil code starts uh, interfacing with his systems and I, this is what I thought you were going to bring up because I openly laughed at this. Because when he's having all of these like terrifying human thoughts, he, he actually gives off this physical gas. <laughs> <laughs> and like this gas starts like emanating from him and collecting around his feet and stuff. I just thought that was very funny. Yeah, that's basically going to be a big part of the second half of this book. They go down to this vault, they unleash some like warp code that starts like he sort of instantly becomes kind of corrupted by this code and the code just starts floating out and messing about with people's communication systems and stuff like that there's like we hear in a later bit of the book that there's like lots of lightning around olympus mons and stuff while this is going on but also at risk of accidentally um unleashing warp powers is is obviously um dahlia and zeth with their big what with the machine that dahlia and her friends have been building they find out that this is to be used so they do it very well and Zeth's impressed with it and they sort of the machine gets set up in this grand chamber where there's like loads of psychers in like holes around the wall there's a guy who's strapped to a machine in the middle who's unconscious and he's sort of to be the conduit and like there's sort of this is a bit where I think your your point earlier about the in terms of like Dahlia coming across as too wide-eyed or naive or whatever and like she sort of just barely registers that there might be something morally dubious about this setup yeah she, but, hasn't, like, she hasn't been reading these books obviously um this guy called lucas um he is sort of kept sedated and when they're ready to like integrate this new part of the the machine this is all of this is the akashic reader and they bring him around and surprisingly in a really refreshing twist he is very keen like he's not sort of being tortured he is there on his own um uh, reconnaissance he wants to he's an empath so he can feel uh, other people's feelings and he wants to know this information he wants to be able to help the the imperium with this knowledge and but part of why he feels relatively relaxed about it is he he senses that dahlia like genuinely cares for his well-being basically so he's like i know uh, you know yeah. i know that and and is super um, confident in her own creation that she's built she's she knows yeah. that it'll work um and then she goes and talks to zeth about what exactly is going to happen here because they're going to and she zeth says that they're going to um, they need a lot of psychic power to enter this the 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 warp basically, so they're going to uh, channel a small fraction of the astronomicon, which is the light that the emperor provides that allows uh, people to navigate through the warp. They're going to uh, divert a bit of that and use it to power the machine almost. And this this is the worst bit of the book actually. It's just it's. I really, I really liked it up until this point, um, because immediately Dahlia just goes, 
what? I was thinking that the power limit would be have a min max and an average of this and now it's going to be higher than that or lower than that or something and therefore I know it's not going to work and you're just like that is within the space of a small paragraph a whole lot of numbers and bullshit is entered into the book for the first time and it invalidates everything that's gone before it's just like magical reasoning that is just stupid and and stands out all the more because it hadn't been like that before i just thought it was sort of stupid because it was just like it was just kind of really simple it was just like oh you thought there was going to be a little bit of psychic power going into it actually no there's going to be fucking loads of it (laughs) yeah Yeah. and then it's like surely that would have been like that would have been something to have made her aware of earlier on yeah you know what i mean like it's not like you'd it's just like a really major part of the whole operation. Yeah, and then that... and then she goes, "This is this isn't going to work. This is very dangerous. You best stop. Let's let's recalculate." And Zeth goes, uh, "I don't think so." <laughs> like, <laughs> I, literally just before this, they had a talk about the importance of empiricism and in testing things, and uh, a sort of knowing things isn't important until they can be proved. And then she's like, no, no, all, all of this nonsense, no need for any more testing. It's like Zeth has let them go through this whole process on a set of assumptions about things that were really central to the whole project that were completely wrong. Yeah. Only to reveal at the last minute that actually it's going to be like this, which, you you know, yeah, um, and, that did not make sense. And, yeah, and you're and, right. And it's totally given the possibility of a second chance to turn back. And that's a, a sort of important part of of this book, really, is that lots of people are given second chances, but all of them think they've gone too far in one direction uh, to be able to turn back. Kelp- Do you mean Zeth's given the second chance? Here? Zeth is, uh, but doesn't take it. And previously, uh, Kelbor Hal is given the chance. Uh, he doesn't take it, but he doesn't want it. Um, LAUGHTER uh, but also uh, Dahlia and the rest of the team, when they see that like these psychers are par- uh, powering the machine and that they, they sort of talk about, they didn't realize any of this, but now that they do know they, they've gone too far in one direction in order to turn back. And that's sort of a, a central theme of this is that, is there, is there too far gone? Is there... Uh, why don't any of these people take me- one of these many second chances that are offered uh, in order to sort of restore a bit of sanity to the world? But Sorry, so I suppose we should say, so they turn this thing on with the, the masses of power that Dawa has only just found out about. And despite her sort of assuring Jonas, the guy in the chair, that he wouldn't, that he wouldn't suffer through this, he suffers a great deal. Yeah, and the psychers start dying and Dawa kind of, gets her way into the chamber where he is and gets raised up into the air by the power of the warp. He says that he has seen he's seen all of this knowledge and that the dark secret at the heart of Mars. And then he says it's important that he shows Dahlia her destiny, at which point she sees that and starts screaming, which can't be a good uh, foreshadowing. Uh, and then he melts. And that's it. Yeah, that's part the, one done. This is this is I think this is my favorite book really so far in the series. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was like general. I mean, there were some bits of bad writing in it, but generally, I thought it was better written. I mean, structurally, maybe a bit strange. I thought the setting was really cool. What like you mentioned, you know, um, some really good descriptions. I mean, there's often good descriptions, but this one wasn't just sort of jumping from like planet to planet. Um, it was all in one pretty geographically contained area and had not only a kind of rich like setting in terms of physical descriptions but also in terms of what you said sort of social political structure yeah i i really liked it apart from that um one moment but as i say that was only a paragraph everything before i really enjoyed and the sort of learning about the structure of the mechanicum was really interesting and something that I think, you know, should be 
the source for all different kinds of stories rather than just the odd story within the heresy itself if you see what i mean like i could i could take dozens of stories being told on mars i think there are just so so many uh ways in to tell uh, a good tale i guess in like most of the books there's some element of factional strife um you know politics ideology and you know philosophy um held by these different factions and so on and like oftentimes it like it just um the the description of that is just serving a kind of is it, perfunctory you know and just kind of serving a function in the story uh and not really substantial whereas this felt like quite substantial you know like the it felt like lying behind what we were hearing there were substantial uh, a substantial world had been built you know where sometimes it it's felt a little thin, I guess, in those regards. Yeah, but uh, no, I I agree that well, this makes it fe- the rest of it feel thin. I think because these interlocking and competing desires and and sort of societal structures felt totally real in a in a world of giant machine <laughs> monsters. Um, <laughs> And yeah, it, it, it felt like a real society. And, and this is where I think, because I've had a good moan once or twice about, you know, lore over narrative and how I think a lot of modern sci-fi and a lot of um, modern cinema and like it's like the Star Wars uh, universe is a good example now of just loads of lore and no good storytelling. This is an example of how lore adds to storytelling because it provides so many options and so many storytelling uh, levers to use to tell a good story. And whereas all the, the lore that I think gone that has gone before has been exactly as you say, it's been perfunctory. It's just been it's just been there. It doesn't feel like it engages with the story itself. Yeah, yeah, because I, I sort of was trying to find a way to describe that just before, and I said, like, oh, it's, it's, it's only there to serve a function in the story, but it wasn't even that. It was just kind of, like, just lots of mentions of things. and It's there to repl- in place of story, almost. Yeah, but, but like, this sort of, I don't know, lore and story were working symbiotically, I guess, here, you know, in a, in a much more... It just. By the way, have you seen that new Star Wars film? I have, yeah. What did you think of that? I enjoyed it much more in a second viewing, I must say. Have <laughs> you seen like, it twice? Yeah. Um, I at first I was like, because obviously, like there was with the Last Jedi, which I enjoyed. That was the last one, the sec- the middle. One. Yeah, the second yeah, one. Yeah, so I enjoyed that um, a lot. That had obviously taken some sharp turns away from the previous film, which was directed by J.J. Abrams, and he just sort of just lurched everything back in this third film mm. and like I found that really unsatisfying I was like you could pretty much with like one or two scenes added in or deleted you could pretty much have the third film following directly on from the first film yeah like yeah so much has he just kind of like ignored it and I, I just thought like because I, I I liked the weird directions that the second one took yeah uh, because I thought the first one I thought there was barely any point for it to exist. Um, yeah. It was it was a remake essentially, but worse than a yeah. remake because like I'll go and see a remake, but this one didn't call itself a remake. This one called itself a new story, and it was so creatively bereft. <laughs> like it had nothing to say. It had nothing new, and then this one was it's like you say it was rowing back. And uh, I just I, again, w- well made and bland. Acting is fine, characters fine. I just think like, oh, uh, just take a swing, just do something. And I, I felt I felt let down by it. I, I should like I should say I'm not a. I, I've seen the Star Wars films. I'm not a massive fan, um, so I don't have any sort of huge attraction to the universal world so i'm i'm purely going in as somebody wanting to see some uh some good films and i 
I don't think I saw them. They're not bad by any means. They're not bad, but they're just um, they're just not great. But yeah, I thought like to be honest, the the thing of it, the third film that left the most sort of bad taste for me was the the, the almost total sidelining of the character of Rose, because mm-hmm. um, obviously like the uh, actor Kelly Marie Tran got all sorts of abuse after uh, sort of misogynistic, racist abuse and whatnot um, after uh, The Last Jedi. And it, I'm not saying that her what was done with her character was done in response to that, but you couldn't, it was impossible not to see it in that context. Mm-hmm. And like, I just thought it would be so easier, so easy to just, like there was almost new characters introduced to do stuff that her character could have done. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, yeah, it's like, and this is this is Disney, like this is Disney who care about making money. They don't want, and that's maybe why that what explains that you know this trilogy was their first foray into Star Wars filmmaking after they bought the rights from Lucasfilm or whoever owned it before, um, and so you can see like. This is uh, this is the golden goose. All you need to do is don't fuck it up. So don't take yeah. creative liberties. Don't take chances. Um, just give us this money making thing, and anything that might get in the way of that, anything that might upset some uh, racist nerds, then stop that. So uh, just to wrap up, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for getting in touch. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please do spread the words. Uh, tell friends, uh, tell enemies, tell anyone to listen. We're available on all the normal podcast networks. Uh, you can talk to us at horseheretics at gmail.com. And we will be back in two weeks to finish off Mechanicum by Graham McNeil. Okay, see you next time. Yeah.